This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. With the incoming PC government scrapping cap and trade, billions in carbon credits are in limbo as consumers could be on the hook for upgrades that were expected to be part of the rebate program. To talk more about all of this, Lisa DeMarco is with us. DeMarco Allen, LLP, specializing in climate laws and is with us now. Lisa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So how much, how, how complicated is this? Is it as easy as it sounds to scrap cap and trade? It's not as easy as it sounds. There are a number of agreements with other governments, including Quebec and California. And there, is, uh, there are many stranded assets, potentially stranded assets out there that are held by Ontario companies that will affect jobs in Ontario. So we have to see what's next. We have to take a measured approach to... Uh, determine what the government's going to do. But right now there's a lot of uncertainty in this market, about $2.8 to $3.8 billion of uncertainty. Should this have been figured out before actually, I, I guess none of this has actually happened yet because uh, uh, officially the premier doesn't take over until June 29th, uh, or so 27th, I'm sorry. Um, should, should this have been figured out ahead of time or is this all still premature? It's a pretty good point, actually, because it has kind of happened already, despite the fact that the Premier hasn't taken office. By announcing that Ontario wasn't going to take place in the auction, uh, the announcement had to go out on June the 15th um, for the August 15th auction, California and Quebec snapped into action and actually froze transfers out of Ontario's accounts. So it's already had a market impact. Uh, And then to answer your question, should... This had been done with some more communications. Uh, it would have been ideal if there were, there was knowledge of what the other plan was, what the next steps are. Um, that would have been, in my view anyway, uh, better for the marketplace and for companies who've invested. Uh, what what in the should the next what should the next steps be, Lisa? What what needs to happen here? I think there needs to be some certainty provided to companies that are holding those minimum $2.8 billion assets that they won't be left holding the bag, so to speak, that they'll be kept whole. And look at next steps. What are you going to do instead? What does the policy look like instead? Um, And um, there needs to be some communications with everybody affected by this. And that would be uh, sooner rather than later, given that we're now in this limbo phase with, as I say, about... 2.8 to 3.8 billion dollars of potential liability standing out there. Where does this leave California and Quebec who are already in? Uh, Well, certainly they've taken some immediate measures to try and stabilize the market. What they've done is they've set out an announcement saying they've frozen all transfers from Ontario registered participants' accounts. And uh, I think that they're, uh, at this point, actively considering what steps to take next in order to stabilize their markets. And that August 15th auction will be quite telling. I think um, there, there are a lot of concerned regulators in Ontario and Quebec as to how that auction will go. Obviously, only two provinces in a state involved in this. With Ontario leaving, how much smaller does this market become? Could these two markets collapse uh, under this plan? Well, California is a pretty big market in and of itself, and it was going on its own for a while until Quebec joined. Uh, So in order of size, California is by far the biggest market, then Ontario, then Quebec. Uh, It certainly could have a very significant market impact, but given that California has been bolstered by a new set of legislation and a renewal 
think it'd be unlikely that that market impa- uh, collapsed, but certainly Quebec, I think, is watching closely. And the bigger question is, what is the rest of the world going to take from this as a market signal? Well, uh, well, and and what do we take from that, Lisa? I mean, again, um, why didn't other states, why didn't other provinces buy into this? Other provinces have bought into it. A number of virtually all provinces have some form of carbon pricing uh, announced. No, but I'm talking specifically with these deals with with these certain uh, provinces and states, this deal with Quebec and and California. I I think a number have announced an intent to start off domestically and then look at linking. Uh, You can look across the country. A a number have announced that. B.C. was initially uh, very involved and, you know, in a wait-and-see mode. Nova Scotia's in a wait-and-see mode. So where is all that that now? Because I guess the point that I'm making is it seems to be losing, people seem to be losing interest as opposed to gaining support. Is that accurate? I don't know. In some ways, it seems as though this move has consolidated support in a number of provinces that have carbon pricing, and in other ways, it could definitely be challenging. So I think it's a little too early to tell what the net impact is, um, but in certain jurisdictions, it has rallied uh, some consensus that we haven't seen before. I don't want to. I don't want to label this as as the same as all carbon taxes because I think what was going on with California and Quebec and Ontario was a little bit different than what, for example, the prime minister is calling everybody to be involved in. Uh, you know, eventually, uh, and again, and again, I guess my point is. Um, uh, although, you know, each province's programs are growing in some way, because that's where the law is going anyway, uh, I, I'm just, I'm confused as to why this didn't catch on more, why it was just Ontario, California, and Quebec that were into trading these things. And do you think that it's because people just didn't understand this? They didn't they didn't get how it worked? It, it seemed like a shell game to them. Oh, no, I think there certainly was some catch on. You have to remember, this was really early days. The program had only been up and in place for about 18 months, not even 18 months. So I I think there's definitely a a movement towards carbon pricing in different forms. And you're right, there is a a big difference between a carbon tax and a cap-and-trade system. And certainly uh, the amount of response from companies like steel companies and cement companies who are able to reduce emissions and actually have a financial benefit from the value they created from the cap-and-trade system, it's pretty impressive. So I think it was very early days, and uh, we'll see what happens in terms of next steps and whether a robust program replaces it or there's another policy approach. Uh, the next few few weeks and months will be pretty so do you, are pretty you think there's a, do you think there's a possibility that some sort of other policy will come out that somehow um, uh, compensates these companies for the money already spent or includes them in it or some sort of deal that way is that what you're alluding to I, I'd be pretty surprised if the province uh, would leave uh, companies holding 2.8 to 3.8 billion dollars in debt that they caused them to incur out there. I'd be pretty surprised if the government wanted to have that impact on steel workers and uh, energy workers and people in sectors who are capped. I- I'd be surprised if they did nothing. I guess my point in all of this is why is this not catching on? Like why why did it not catch on in Ontario? Why? And again, you, you know, you mentioned it was in the early stages, but voters don't seem to buy into this in Ontario. 
Why do you think that is? And again, I'm, I'm specifically looking at this, the, the situation with California and Quebec. Yeah, I don't know that that's the case. I don't know that voters were given a clean bill of goods with the information. The carbon tax is not cap and trade, and the benefits of cap and trade were uh, unfairly uh, uh, unfairly uh, spoken about in the media. I think the media bears a bit of responsibility here by not getting its facts straight. And, not, and, and what, uh, what was the media missing here? I, I think conflating carbon tax with cap and trade, totally different things. You're never going to see people over-comply with a tax and earn a profit from a tax. Cap and trade, you are going to see companies over-comply with that cap and earn a profit from taking action to reduce emissions early on and really benefiting the economy and the people that work from them. So I I think getting into the weeds, it's tough. Mm -hmm. Not easy for the media to handle. I give you full kudos there. But we didn't do such a great job. Uh, California, for example, did a better job, and their public actually went to plebiscite on this and fully voted to have it uh, in place and continuing. And do you think that do you, do you think that Ontarians have become skeptical about uh, green energy about the whole movement? Yeah, if, if it's only about green energy, I think there there's a lot of angst in the marketplace about this is costing me more. And the facts didn't get out there that, in fact, this is costing less than a carbon tax. This is actually causing opportunities for... Well, at the end of the day, Lisa, are we perhaps losing touch with what this did cost Ontario taxpayers and what we did and didn't get out of it? I mean, again, you know, at one point the Premier called us all bad actors. Um, You know, like, uh, I don't know, whose fault is this? that it didn't get explained well, and is that the media's job? Yeah, I think you have to be careful, and there's really a call for some great journalism here to get into the hardcore facts of what is... The hardcore facts here, Lisa, is people's electricity bills went through the roof paying for this. That's why this government's no longer in power. Sorry, because of cap-and-trade, people's electricity bills went through the roof? No, but but again... (laughs) That's certainly not the case, my friend. I think I, we have to be really careful about what is fact and what isn't fact. The point Sawyer has done some analysis of this. The He's point can recently. the point that I was and, and I'll let you finish your, your point here. The point I was making is that the Ontario government took us the Ontario voter into this uh, head over heels, spent a fortune on it, perhaps didn't explain it correctly to how it was going to work or how it was going to save us, uh, and then again push the price of it all 10 years down the road to refinance it all, are you surprised we are where we are? So let's get into the facts on that. When the Tory government went into electricity competition, they considered carbon pricing and were working on that concept 18 years ago. So saying that we're going head over heels into this with an 18-year process and consultation all along with industry calling for certainty and something to be put in place is fact. What's fiction is that they went head over heels into this process and imposed a very, very costly program. How much did it cost? What are your facts there to actually implement? I have no idea. It didn't cost a lot. It didn't cost anything to implement the process. When you look at 
So where's the problem here? Where did this all go wrong, and why is it costing Ontarians so much? Uh, well, this is, again, the, the question, is it costing Ontarians that much when you look at the net cost to the average family? And I think we have to be clear on what that net cost is, and that's when I'll refer you to Dave Sawyer's work and a number of other economists' work on what is it costing the average Ontario family, and what is it saving the Ontario family and Ontario goods and services that are getting exported out of the province? Are we actually putting our exports in a competitive advantage position, or are we competitively harming them? And I think that's a really good question that you know bright journalists like you should look into and get the facts on. Stop in terms of looking at this as an us and them uh, bifurcated bad good and get into the subtleties of what's real and what's not real about this. Certainly not perfect. Certainly room for improvements. But I think we have to stop um, looking at this as a yes or no, good, bad proposition and look at what works, what doesn't, how much it really costs, how much it didn't cost. Well, I'm sure the Ontario government, the Ontario Liberals are asking themselves those questions right now. Uh, Lisa DeMarco has been with us, DeMarco Allen LLP. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots of chatter uh, still around the legalization of recreational uh, cannabis, especially with the date now being announced that it will be uh, fully legal in Canada as of October 17th. Uh, Still lots of discussion on whether provinces will be ready, uh, legislation and and such all in a row to to cover the many uh, aspects of of legalizing uh, such a drug. One of those discussions that's still being uh, had is what age should this product be made legal? Some are out there saying that it should be, uh, remember when alcohol back in the day was 21 and then it was lowered to 19, 18 in some places. Uh, lots are saying that this is where we should start with cannabis legislation. To talk more about all of this, Jordan Sinclair is with us, Director of Communications and Media for Canopy Growth Corporation, and he is with us now. Jordan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, are you surprised that as we get down to the actual date of legalization, all of these questions are, are, are coming out, are still coming out, are still being debated? It doesn't surprise me that much because I think this is a topic that's on uh, that's on the tips of everybody's tongues. You know, this is this is a big change, uh, and in this period between knowing what the rules are going to be uh, and the, those rules coming into place, I think right now is is the time where you know everyone's curiosity is is peaked. So why not raise the age? Should it be twenty one? I would say this is an area where policymakers had to strike a balance. So they had to strike a balance between um, the public health recommendations that they received, and those would have been that, you know, cannabis, uh, while it's not incredibly harmful to your health, there are some health consequences, and those are are most prevalent for people whose brains are still developing. Uh, So that is anybody that's under 25 years of age. So public health people would have said, let's start at 25, and then, you know, a whole group of other people would have said that, uh, that you should start younger. I think from a pragmatic perspective, what you have to consider is um, there is already access to, to alcohol and to cigarettes at a certain age. Um, and that is the age where people are basically deemed to be adults, where they can make decisions for themselves. Uh, and then it's really up 
to the rest of the industry and the government to make sure that those decisions are are based on good evidence and have the proper sort of warnings attached to them. Uh, and I think that's where they netted out was just a, a pragmatic approach. Can uh, this industry learn from the alcohol industry in this regard, or are the industries entirely separate in that in that uh, case? Yeah, we, well, when you come of age as an industry in 2018, you've got a lot of best practices from other industries that you can look at. Uh, and from our perspective, anyway, at Canopy Growth, what we do is we look at all of the mistakes that other industries made in the 60s and the 70s, uh, and we're just starting fresh. So, yes, we can learn from alcohol, and I think we've already done that in a good way. So one of our first moves uh, once legalization started to become, uh, you know, an inevitability or, or an inevitable reality, we partnered with Mothers Against Drunk Drivers because we wanted to get the message out there that you know, impaired driving is a serious thing uh, and cannabis, despite what some people might say, does not make you a better driver. It, it very clearly makes you a worse driver. Um, so I think like those sorts of responsible actions uh, should define what the cannabis business does and hopefully that'll set us on the right course to you know, to uh, to change the minds out there for people that think that either we're big business and only in it for profits um, or that it's just a bunch of uh, sort of hippies uh, running this place. Uh, do we know enough from a health perspective? Um, are we ready for this? Yeah, so the millions and millions of Canadians are consuming cannabis already. Uh, so from that perspective, we've already watched the largest phase four clinical trial in the history of the world because we, we have a, a very clear understanding that lots of people are smoking cannabis and we're not watching um, huge amounts of hospital visits from that. And this is in, uh, a production reality where that product is not coming from a facility that's even close up to the standard that, that we're producing it to. Uh, so I think that, you know, as we have discussions about what is this going to change in society? We can't lose sight of the fact that cannabis is already a reality in society. It's just being produced by an illicit market. So are you saying the testing has been done? Well, I think more research can be done and more research is needed, but I don't think that you can say that, uh, that the health risks of cannabis um, are completely unknown um, because so many people are already smoking it. Should we have had all of these discussions prior to legalization? I think we have been having them. Yeah, I, I would say that it's no reason to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, but through the regulation process, through the legislative process, the government called for uh, public comment on a number of different occasions. Uh, and, and no one stayed quiet. You know, there was a whole round of consultation that went around uh, what was called the, the task force. So the government of Canada set out a special task force to study this issue. Uh, they had a call for public comment, and about 16,000 different organizations uh, and individuals supplied their comment. Then there was another round around the legislation again. So I would say that this conversation has been happening you know, for at least uh, 12 or 14 months. What sort of changes, alterations, challenges do you see uh, post-legalization? Ooh, that, that is a good one. So I, I don't think that the way that the rules are written right now will still be the rules after a year or two. I think that there, there will be time for pause and reflection. A lot of that change, I hope, is around the existing medical system. Uh, so the government has said that they won't change uh, those set of laws right now, 
and I would say that cannabis today is treated as an, a very strange category of one in the medical world. It's not a part of mainstream medicine. Uh, so as a business, you know, it's, it's incumbent on us to get all of the research that's needed and the uh, insurance coverage that's needed so that the medical users that are, you know, that are have already been using the system might be able to get their cannabis um, free of charge if they have a good health plan. Uh, that's a huge area of focus for us. We also think that it's strange that there's excise tax that's being charged on cannabis products. So uh, medical cannabis patients will be forced to charge, you know, what some people call a, a sin tax, even though it's something that's been prescribed to them by their doctor. So those, those are areas that we have uh, some serious concerns around. And then we'll want to weigh in a little bit uh, to shape any of the regulations that come out around uh, different product types like edibles, chocolate bars, drinks, things like that. Uh, so that'll be a huge focus for us in the, in the next coming year. I guess that will be the next phase, will it? We'll be expanding the product lines. That's it, yeah. So I think the government had uh, a lot to work through. So they focused on... Uh, getting the retail and getting the, all of the, the laws sort of set around um, production and distribution through the provinces. And then next, they'll change their focus to different product types. So whether it's the CFIA uh, or, or which government body has to weigh in, uh, that's to be determined. But next up, yes, is determining what the rules will be for, for chocolate bars and other infused things. How uh, difficult is it for companies like yours because the distribution system from each province is different? Well, it, you know, it is different in every province. Uh, I think we're trying to see the bright side of this. We're trying to be optimistic. And for us, what this presents is an opportunity to measure uh, a bunch of different systems side by side to see which ones provide different outcomes. Uh, so, for example, we've, we're going to run our own private retail in Newfoundland, uh, and then we'll use all the data that we capture from there, hopefully to be able to demonstrate that we should be able to do that in other provinces. Uh, and if we are as responsible as any other model, uh, we can have the data to show that. So there are challenges, sure, mostly around just logistics and, and having a bunch of different customers. Um, but we're trying to look at the bright side there. Uh, do you see changes in distribution happening? Uh, Doug Ford, uh, incoming premier of Ontario, has said he's he's willing to look at that. Do you see those changing? Well, we're excited by, by uh, Premier Ford's remarks. Uh, very excited as a business because we made similar recommendations uh, when the Wynn government was doing their exploration and trying to figure out what the distribution would look like here in Ontario. Uh, we have been distributing cannabis as an e-commerce model for the past four years, and we've done an incredibly good job at it. So we wanted our ability to run our own e-commerce stores. That is not possible under the current laws. We also wanted the ability to be able to run our own um, run our own sales, especially at the points of production. So that's uh, that's what we're hopeful for. We would love to be able to reopen the visitor center here in Smith Falls, uh, and we're going to do that regardless. But it would be very nice if people, once they came for a tour, they could leave with some of the products that uh, that they just watched being made. You know, this is similar to uh, how wineries operate. Even though they sell their product through the LCBO, you can go to any winery, and if they've made the product on site, you can buy it there. So we're hoping that uh, the producers, at a minimum, will be allowed to do that in Ontario. So people will be touring these places like wineries? That's our goal, yeah. We're we're working on the the tour experience right now. So (laughs) the the facility that we operate uh, used to be a Hershey chocolate factory, and they used to offer tours. So they had a catwalk that oversaw production, uh, and you could walk around and look at different things being made. We kept the catwalk, so we kept uh, all of that infrastructure in place. Uh, 
uh, obviously needs a bit of a touch-up. Right. But uh, but we've kept it all hoping that uh, that this exact thing would happen and hoping that we could we can invite people back and they could watch, you know, our chocolate bars being made and our plants being grown inside. Um, so we're working towards that. It should be ready by the end of the summer. Uh, so considering this was once uh, a Hershey factory, are you totally set up for edibles? Well, <laughs> So I would say that the the building itself required a lot of a lot of touch ups and a lot of renovations. As you could imagine, it was empty for about five years. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, you know there's uh, the, there's a logical flow to this building that uh, where it makes a lot of sense to do uh, chocolate and food production, and we are fully fully preparing for that. You know, it, it takes a long time to go from. Uh, from a conceptual model to actually having products available. And when you think about, you know, things in terms of how long it takes to develop a product, a year isn't that long. So we've got to get the means of production in place now and then work uh, work through the, the finer details as the laws get implemented. Wow, you saw the future when you bought that property. <laughs> yeah, I, say, I, <laughs> wish, I wish, yeah, we could attribute it to... Uh, to being able to see the future, but I think it was a mixture of good luck and, and good positioning. Uh, what about advertising moving forward? Um, there was an interesting article uh, by Alan Cross uh, written recently on the Global News site, which mm-hmm. talked about how this is going to place itself within the music industry. Where do you yeah. see that going? Like, for example, you know, you're down at a at, at a show and, and you see a major brewer there, or or, or so on and so forth. How, how how does your your industry fit into that? I would say that uh, the rules surrounding our industry are a little bit more restrictive than what brewers are allowed to do today. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we are completely on the sidelines. We are allowed to participate, um, but we just have to be a little bit more careful on on where uh, and what we say. You know, age gating is a big thing for us, so we only want to be speaking to uh, to adult audiences that can be verified. Um, and then what we're really focusing on when we do have interactions is uh, that it's based on uh, education around the product. So our biggest focus right now is making sure that when people walk into the store the first time, they've got some sort of an idea of, of what they're there to buy and what products might match that occasion because, you know, cannabis is not one size fits all. There are many different types of strains. There are many formats to take it. Uh, so what we want to make sure is when someone does make a first purchasing decision, it's not the wrong one because then they likely wouldn't make a second purchasing decision. They would just ignore cannabis from, from then on. I'm, what I'm thinking about here is the same experience I had with Southern Comfort when I was 18 years old and I had no idea how to drink. Uh, and then I ended up getting really sick and I will never buy that product again. So mm. that those are the sorts of things that we're working through, but the education side. Uh, are there any restrictions on where you can put product names? And, and I'll come right out and say this, and, and I'm not going to mention the company because I'm not sure it was yours. Yeah. But I was at a concert at uh, the Budweiser stage down at uh, Toronto's waterfront a while back. And we're in sort of an open area where there's food trucks and, and so on and so forth. And there was just a neat little promotion thing there, and it was uh, the letters H-I. And it was just like the Toronto sign or the Hamilton sign, except this was a portable one that you would move around. And people yeah. were actually standing getting their picture taken to it, and it was right in the midst of all of this. And then when you go up close, you realized that the dot-com address was, in fact, a company similar to yours. Yeah, not similar to ours. That was ours. Yeah, that's us. That so are, are you? So you are Tweed. I wasn't sure if yeah, you guys were affiliated. So I'm yeah. thinking, how does that happen? 
How does like because you I I I sat there and I thought, wow, like I didn't think you were allowed to do that. Yeah, so it, it, it's it's shocking. All of the news coverage uh, has surrounded the things that we're not allowed to do, um, but the rules do allow you to do uh, certain things. So what we what we've been really tasked with doing is finding a way um, to play within all of the rules and the regulations as they've been laid out, uh, and then being creative within them. So that uh, that specific one uh, is on side. You know, if you go down to the Budweiser stage, you'll see a number of things, you know, signage, some installations, things like that. Um, but the way that we're focusing it is all around product education. So just you know, getting out, engaging, not making claims about quality or, or strain type or anything like that. Uh, and that's how we're allowed to do it. Wow. Any backlash from that? Backlash. Maybe no, I shouldn't be re- talking about it now because now you're going to no, get no, some. It's, no, it's great. I mean, this, this is what this is all about. Um, so from our perspective, the, the response that we've gotten so far has been incredible. I think people, um, people are interested. They're curious. So there is an incredible amount of engagement. Uh, and we're seeing that on, on almost every metric. So when we, if we do something that, uh, for example, is going to drive people to the website, we look at the data that flows from that. Uh, from any engagement. And it looks like people are coming to the site and spending three or four full minutes cruising around. Uh, so from, a, from an engagement perspective, that's an incredible statistic because it means that you know, people are curious, people are looking for information. Um, we just have to find the creative ways to do that uh, while playing within the rules. Have there been anyone to challenge that you were uh, bending the rules? I think it's, yeah, of course. Like I, I, I would say... I can't think of a specific instance where someone has challenged that we've bent the rules, um, but the confidence level that we have is is really high. You know, we've got uh, we've got a team of lawyers who looks very closely over this type of thing um, for exactly this reason. The stakes are very high, and we don't want the reputational damage that comes with with breaking the rules. So what we do is we look at the framework that we're allowed to participate within, uh, and then we let our creativity kind of go. The marketing team always jokes that they have to come up with 500 ideas. Lawyers say that uh, they're allowed to do two of those 500, yeah. and then they just think of iterations on those two. So uh, this installation that I'm talking about, it has already generated traffic to your site. I'm just on the site now, and it, there's, yeah. the, there's the hi, welcome to Tweed. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and you've, got to, you've got to put your date of birth in before you even get to the site. Talk about that. Sure. So if, if anyone has ever been to um, to a brewer's or a spirit company's website, that age gating is, is the first step of verification. Mm-hmm. And that would allow somebody to say, listen, I, I am old enough to come onto this site. Uh, and there's no way that you can make a purchase from that site. Um, but what we're really trying to do is just have people self-verify that they're of age. Mm-hmm. And then if there was e-commerce that came on top of that, there would be additional measures that would ensure they were right. they were of age to make a purchase. Wow. Uh, do you think a lot of people, because it was so creative, as you put it, I'll call it subtle, uh, do you think people are realizing, like, it is very good marketing. It, it's, 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 it's very tastefully done in the sense that it, it's, it's more educational than, hey, come try this. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but, but again, it, that's a fine line, isn't it? We, yeah, we don't, want to beat, we don't want to beat people over the head with it. We are going for a subtle approach. We're trying to take the creative angle uh, and just get people thinking, get people reading, um, because at the end of the day, like the reason that there's so many media requests, the reason, reason that there's so many stories about this is because people are curious. 
and and information is going to be incredibly key to all of this because if if there is no information available and if there is no place where you can go and and learn a little bit more about a new product type that maybe you haven't tried in 10 or 15 years or you've been getting from the black market and you just don't know anything about you know we we see ourselves as a natural uh, you know, sort of a natural destination for people to find that information. So that that's the angle that we're taking. Uh, and so far, the response has been quite good, quite positive. Jordan Sinclair is with us, Director of Communications and Media Canopy Growth Corporation. Jordan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Okay, thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Women in Saudi Arabia are now allowed to drive motorized vehicles. This is a step forward for the nation. Uh, here's what one reporter had to say about the excitement uh, once this uh, was allowed come Sunday. Sunday night at the stroke of midnight, so many took to the street behind their wheels. They had their husbands or their brothers or their sons in the car in the passenger seat for the first time. And the men were beaming with smiles and filming their female relatives and posting about it also on social media. And here's what a delighted driver had to say. It was like a, a dream that, that uh, came true. Uh, uh, it was really a very, very happy moment to get my uh, Saudi driving license and uh, that I will be uh, hitting the road uh, uh, mm-hmm. by myself and the roads in my country. All right, let's bring in Raheel Raza, Muslim-Canadian journalist, author, public speaker, media consultant, anti-racism activist, and interfaith discussion leader. And Raheel is with us now. Raheel, thanks for the time. Uh, Great to speak with you again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Raheel, is the story here what a big step forward women have taken in Saudi Arabia, or is this a reminder of how far behind they really are? (laughs) Well, you know, in, in a country where women's rights were frozen in the 10th century and in a country where till uh, last year, literally, women could be arrested for driving, it's certainly a step forward. And, you know, I will say that it's it's a good move because uh, this is their inalienable right uh, to be able to drive. And I'm delighted to hear that they, uh, Saudi women will now have the freedom to ride. It's one step in the right direction, but it's also a long way to go. Uh, so, you know, we can't hold our breath. We've lobbied long and hard for the right of uh, Saudi women to drive. And now there are other rights that need to be given to them. So it, it's a movement. Uh, it's a journey. And we hope that it won't take so long again for the, their other rights to be implemented. Are all men okay with this? Uh, we heard the reports <laughs> of men beaming in the passenger seat in the back seat. Is everybody happy? And if so, why did this take so long? Well, about that some of the men are quite sick because now the women are driving their sports cars and their Mercedes, which had been locked up, and their Jaguars. And also, um, the women are driving far more properly. The red lights, the women are following the rules of the road, and this is ticking some of them off, which is fantastic. Uh, and I think this is all part of giving giving women their freedom and their rights because... Uh, you know, this was all due to patriarchy, to power control that this was happening. It has, has nothing to do with faith or culture. This is just uh, the men just didn't want the women on the road. So while some of them may be very happy, there are others who are not so happy, but that's too bad. Uh, they're going to have to learn to live with it. 
Uh, you have said this many times before on the show, not faith, uh, uh, but, but a culture. Uh, let me ask you this. What would have happened prior to Sunday if women in Saudi Arabia did get behind the wheel? W- what would the penalty well, be? Well, they were arrested. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, there is this fantastic book out by a woman called Daring to Drive by a Saudi woman. Her name is Manal Al-Sharif. And, you know, I uh, read it not so long ago. And it is a story of how she dared to drive and she was jailed for that. So this is how bad the punishment was. And, uh, you know, it was uh, something that they just couldn't do. The few women who had taken the initiative and gone out and done this, they were arrested. So, uh, you know, it's a huge step for Saudi women for sure. But for women's rights uh, as a whole, we have a long way to go. Uh, That, you know, in Saudi Arabia, they still don't have the same freedoms as the men do. But we're working our way towards it. You know, I just stay one step at a time, one drop at a time, and this is how change comes. You talked about the women getting behind the, the wheel of their Mercedes or what have you. I think that that's what I found fascinating with the reports I was watching last night was these this is a very affluent part of the world there is a lot of money there these people are driving around in 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 beautiful uh new vehicles it seems odd that we would associate such wealth with necessarily rights that aren't equal of course well wealth doesn't always come with vision you know yeah clearly. Uh, enlightenment doesn't always come with fortune mm. and this is one of the sad parts of, of this country where there is so much wealth um i was delighted to see one woman also took to the tracks and was driving a sports car mm. so uh you know it is um uh, very sad that it's taken so long but at the same time it's delightful. I'm so happy for the women of Saudi Arabia. I wish that, uh, and I hope that all of them will go and get their driving licenses because many of these women are educated women. Mm-hmm. And so there was no reason for them to be, uh, you know, not to be allowed to drive. And just the word allow to me is uh, very patriarchal. I mean, this is their right, and I'm glad they've taken that right. And now we'll hope for more. Do we in this part of the world brush off their uh, their poor record of, of human rights and equality when something like this happens? Do we do we celebrate it as opposed to really looking at what it is and, 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 and where it's come, coming from? Well, we always want to celebrate when women achieve their rights. Of course we do that because, you know, that is all about support for the women. But when you look at the over, overall human rights uh, violations that take place in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia... And, you know, I've been part of the United Nations Human Rights Council and I've gone there and I have been to Saudi Arabia. So I know how they treat the minorities and their women. We must always push the envelope. We must never take it for granted. And we must always question the the rights of minorities, especially in countries like Saudi Arabia, in countries like Saudi Arabia. And so, uh, you know, uh, as I said, we don't take it for granted. We celebrate with the women, we support them, but we push for more rights for everyone in that country. Does the husband still need to give permission for his wife to drive or daughters to drive? I'm not sure what that, where that stands because it hasn't been clarified. But the mm-hmm. fact that they are getting a Saudi license, and I, of course the news talked about them having a guardian with them, so that's probably... Uh, what the initial requirement is. You know, Saudi women can't travel without a male guardian. So let's see how that develops. Uh, But the fact that they can get behind the wheel and uh, 
drive off into the desert is something that is quite remarkable. Uh, why is this happening now? Well, there's been pressure from uh, Western leaders, from President uh, Trump as well. Uh, uh, Prince uh, King Salman has uh, talked about reforms, and uh, I think there has been so much pressure from uh, other agencies and other countries that, uh, you know, they have to live up to their word and say that they are in favor of gender equality and human rights. And let's not forget that Saudi Arabia now sits at the head of the Human Rights Council. So excuse me, if you're going to be head of the Human Rights Council, you have to actually uh, perpetuate and implement those human rights. Otherwise, it's all a big joke and a hypocrisy. So they have to, to live up to that. And I guess this is why they're slowly bringing about the changes. And let's not forget that the women have been lobbying for this as well. As I said, these are educated women. And so they have been pushing for this for a long time. And I'm glad that they've got there right. Has this or is this, will this create divisiveness within Saudi Arabia or is everybody happy with this? Well, uh, you know, patriarchy is very hard to break. So uh, I expect that there will be uh, some divisiveness and there will be pushback and hostility because, as I said, uh, you know, this gives the freedom of for women to be equal. And so uh, there will be some pushback, but because this is now a law and they can do it legally, uh, it goes to say that, you know, they've won a long and hard-fought battle for their rights. Uh, is this more about the economy and less about human rights? I mean, this must be profitable for them. I mean, they've just uh, they've just created double the drivers, or potentially. I mean, is this not good for their economy? Well, this has some been, This is something that's always been there. They, they knew that if they allowed women to work, if they allowed women to travel and allowed them to drive, of course, it would be good for the economy. But that's not been their concern. They're concerned. They, they don't have to worry about that. This is such an affluent country yep. with all its oil, oil wells. Right. This is not something that they worry about. They have always been concerned about this misogyny and control in patriarchy. It's a way of controlling half the population. And letting go of that creates a lot of insecurity among the men. You know, one of the embedded issues in the lack of human rights for women in countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia and other theocracies Uh, has everything to do with control and power and misogyny and patriarchy and very little to do with the economy. What could this lead to? Will this open up the floodgates, Raheel? I hope so. I certainly hope so. uh, You know, this will lead to women, uh, you know, having equal rights to work and travel outside the country and do all the things that women do in the rest of the world, in the Western world, is be independent, have individual thought. And the only thing I hope is that, you know, this move for women's rights will also give the Saudi government an opportunity to free people like Raif Badawi, who is a Mm. blogger who has been in jail for just blogging. So this is what I mean, but when we celebrate, we must continue to push the envelope for other human rights violations that have taken place. You know, uh, when we see equal rights for minorities in Saudi Arabia, I will celebrate with my sisters and brothers in Saudi Arabia, but we have a long way to go. What is the difference for a woman in Saudi Arabia versus North America? What can and can't they do? What are some of the obvious differences? Well, as I said, uh, one of the major differences is the fact of this male guardianship. Mm. Uh, They can't marry without permission of a male member of the family. They can't uh, work. And, of course, they used to not be able to drive. They can't leave the country without permission. It's all about permissions. 
Wow. What about um, face coverings? Would that is that coming next? It seemed odd that you know that women were were getting the right to drive, and there they were behind the wheel, but then you know still covered up with with it, everything covered except their eyes, which again seems almost well, a contradiction. Well, that's again a tribal custom, and you know, in in the the desert, there are tribes who have covered their faces for a long time. Again, this is not a religious requirement by Islam. It is cultural. Cultural. It's something that exists uh, in Saudi Arabia. But, you know, we won't push for that as much. I mean, if a woman's head is covered and she still has all her freedoms and her rights, mm-hmm. that is an important factor. So we have to weigh the balance of what it is that they need to do. Uh, you know, giving giving women the right to drive doesn't mean that they're all going to throw off their cloaks and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, get out on the streets in Western clothes. It's not part of the culture. So it's going to take time to break through these barriers uh, because they have been embedded for so long in the culture of that country that it is the women themselves who are going to slowly find a way to break through these barriers and do what they want to do. Do you think this clock will be turned back? Do you think that there may be uh, enough backlash that this may one day be taken away? or is I don't believe so. Once they have tasted freedom, there's no going back. And this is why this is such a delightful move. This is, uh, you know, the, the good news. And this is why we celebrate, because this is one step in the right direction. These women are not going to go back behind closed doors. Uh, you know, they've got this freedom and they will keep it and they will fight for it. So, you know, this is why freedom is so important. And this is why I appreciate the freedoms that I have in a country like Canada, which is where I came uh, for this right to have individual freedom and gender equality, the freedom of speech, the freedom of, freedom of expression. Now, this is an aspect that doesn't exist in Saudi Arabia, the freedom of speech. Hmm. And this is why uh, people who speak out against the theocracy are very quickly, you know, put behind bars. So all freedoms have to be unequivocal. You know, there needs to be freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of movement. But again, as I said, one step at a time. Hopefully all that will also come. And this is a big step. Uh, Does this put more pressure on the kingdom to keep this going? Yes, and hopefully it will. That is exactly the reason, because the world is watching. And uh, so they will, uh, you know, definitely have the pressure on them. And now that they have opened the doors uh, to this one freedom, the other freedoms will also come in time. What about reaction from other parts of the world? How would they view this? Fantastic. Oh, absolutely fantastic. Women all over the world have been rooting for this because we've been, uh, you know, lobbying for this for a long time. And it's, a, it's a basic right. And so, uh, you know, that there was no reason except, as I said, the theocracy and the patriarchy and the cultural norms that was not allowing women to have these freedoms. So uh, there is a celebration in the sisterhood all over the world. What what would been the reaction when Mohammed bin Salman had announced this? What what would the reaction have been? Would it have all been great, or would it have been? Uh, I'm not sure about this. Well, what I'm seeing and hearing and reading is that it's all been very positive. But of course, you know, we have to wait yeah. a few a little while to see what the naysayers have to do. I mean, you know, at the stroke of midnight, I think some of those women were out there lining up. Uh, to get into their cars uh, exactly at midnight yeah. when, when the clock struck. So 
you know, how much they have waited and how long they have waited for this and what a great feeling of euphoria uh, when you can finally do a simple thing like get behind the wheel of your car and drive. And how much it makes me realize that we can never take our freedoms for granted in the West. You know, we just think that these are, are in, in undeniable rights. But when you look at how long uh, women in Saudi Arabia have had to wait, it's 2018. And, you know, it's about time that uh, the Saudis embraced uh, modernity and it's time that they came into the 21st century and moved ahead with the time. You have studied this for a long time. Did you think you would see this happen? No, I didn't, actually. I, so really? It's come as a very pleasant surprise. Uh, because, you know, they were so dog-headed and, and, and embedded in their theocracy uh, that uh, nobody could say boo to them. And, but, you know, the, the Western leaders were not even making an effort to say boo to them because this was all connected to the oil wealth of uh, the Saudi kingdom. Mm. So people were scared to critique them and, or say anything. So, yes, we have been waiting for a long time, and it is uh, excellent news. So has the rest of the world uh, uh, been criminal in the fact that they've just sort of taken advantage uh, of what this country has to offer them, but then not really commenting on equal rights? Of course they have. Where were the feminist groups in the Million Women March? Were they ever talking about the rights of women in Iran who were being uh, jailed just because they took off a headscarf and showed their hair? In 2018, did they ever lobby for the rights of Saudi women? No. Uh, so, you know, the organized feminist groups, especially Western feminists, have not really given time of the day to these women. And so uh, they, they were ignored, I would say. But, um, you know, in the end, it all works out. And uh, as well as driving, I guess, performance of music and, and listening to music has changed as well, correct? Yes. A lot of things have slowly changed. And so, uh, as I said, you know, these are the, the little luxuries that uh, they are getting. And this is why I'm hopeful that more change will come. It must just seem like a completely new day over there. Yes, and uh, absolutely. Uh, seem ab- I mean, you see the pictures, you see the women yeah. on the street. Yeah. You never or ever saw women driving in the streets. So now you can physically see that picture and they are showing off. And they are, at, I don't think they're going to even go home. <laughs> That's, they'll be driving around all night. Yes. <laughs> That's yes. it. Rahil, more power to them. Yeah, good for them. Rahil Raz has been with us, Muslim-Canadian journalist, author, public speaker, media consultant, anti-racism activist, and interfaith discussion leader. Rahil, always thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.